Gather ye rosebuds while ye may, old time is still a flying. And this same flower that smiles today, tomorrow will be dying. Thank you, Mr. Pitts. Gather ye rosebuds while ye may. The Latin term for that sentiment is carpe diem. Seize the day. Gather ye rosebuds while ye may. Why does the writer use these lines? Because he's in a hurry. No. Ding. Thank you for playing anyway. Because we are food for worms, lads. Because believe it or not, each and every one of us in this room is one day going to stop breathing, turn cold, and die. And I'd like you to step forward over here and peruse some of the faces from the past. The world is their oyster. They believe they're destined for great things, just like many of you. Their eyes are full of hope, just like you. Did they wait until it was too late to make from their lives even one iota of what they were capable? Because you see, gentlemen, these boys are now fertilizing daffodils. But if you listen real close, you can hear them whisper their legacy to you. Yes. See, once in a while, a movie comes along and it kind of makes its way onto your top 10 list. And then no matter how many weeks or months or years or decades go by, it seems just to stay on that top 10 list. And the Dead Poet Society, from which you just saw that scene, is one of those movies for me that just remains on the top 10 list because it has such extraordinary power to it. And of the power in the movie, that scene that we just watched, probably in my opinion, uh, is the most powerful scene in the entire movie and is the, is the little pin that holds everything else that happens in the movie together. Because this is the scene where the teacher, played by Robin Williams, uh, calls the boys into thinking beyond the everyday, the mundane, the, 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 the rat race, the, just the moving through. Because they're in school, they're trying to get stuff done, and he is inviting them to think about life in a bigger way. Why is it that this scene or scenes like this resonate so deeply with us? Why is it that when we're done playing that, uh, we all kind of sit in awe for a minute and we're like, yes, yes, that's right. Because we resonate deeply with this fact that uh, we often feel so stuck in the dailiness, don't we? In the everyday, in the mundane, in the, in the getting from morning till night, in the finishing out. And somewhere deep down inside, we know that we started out wanting to do something that matters. Wanting to, to, to live a life that matters. And, and yet, the, the tension that often exists in us is that we start out with this desire to live a life that matters, and then what ends up happening is as we begin to pursue that life, we get caught up and captivated by the very things that we're trying to utilize to create a life that matters. Now, this is the essence of the tension of the American dream, isn't it? We, we walk into the American dream 
a country that offers us this, this promise, this hope, this whisper that says, you and I can work here for any opportunity to become anything. And so we start out in this context going, wow, we can really do stuff that matters. We can really build things and, and become things that are beyond our imagination. We're told from the time we're little, you can be what? Anything you want, right? And so we enter into the playing field with that. And we begin to pursue these things that feel so desperately like they will matter. Building bigger and better things, having more, more influence and more power and more, uh, and more resource so that we can do things that matter. And then what ends up happening is the very things that we pursue, they begin to capture our hearts. They begin to become like idols to us. They begin to feel like they determine our value. And so then what we begin to do is we chase after them no longer because it matters, but because it matters to us, because it means something to us. And before you know it, you wake up one day and here's what you realize you're doing. You're actually building an entire life to guard a retirement and to have enough to retire well, to have some fun while you do it, and to give a little back to the generation before so they can get good college educations, so they can get good jobs, so that they can make enough money to do what? To retire well and do the same. And you're like, hold on, hold on. That does not sound like where I started. So you know what we do then? We create bucket lists. We do. I'm going to jump out of a plane. I'm going to go to Australia. I'm going to scuba dive. I'm, I'm something. You know, you will have bucket lists now. That's kind of what we do here in the land of opportunity. And so then we pursue our bucket lists because they feel like they're more meaningful. And, and then we watch scenes like this and something in us cries out and says, yes, yes, that's it. I don't want to live this life that I know is going to come to an end and find out it was relatively meaningless. I want it to be full of meaning. And that's why these scenes resonate so deeply with us because we live in an environment that promises opportunity and yet even in it, the tension we live in is that that opportunity doesn't become enough to give us what our souls so desperately long for. This is exactly the same tension that the church in Corinth was living in. The people of the city of Corinth, of Corinth the Corinthians, they were living in the church with the same tension you and I face in this cultural context. You see, Corinth was a city of opportunity. It was a city that had grown very quickly in the Roman Empire. It was one of the top cities to go and live in if you were looking for opportunity. It was a transient city because it was on a route and so there was a lot of opportunity there for making money in the exchange of goods and, and, and resources. And because people were transient in Corinth, uh, there was a lot of what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. And whenever you have a city like that, it presents uh, an opportunity for entertainment, right? Because you can entertain people in any way that they want to be because the secrets remain there. And so if you were into uh, making money, moving forward, gaining power, becoming, becoming someone, Corinth was one of the places to do it. It was into this environment where a bunch of people from Corinth had been chasing after the same things we in our cultural context often chase after. And Paul arrives on his second church planting journey, comes down Macedonia, lands in Corinth, and preaches the gospel, right? And what is the gospel? The good news of Jesus. It says God came to do what? To rescue our souls, to make us alive when we were dead as souls. 
Not only that, but he also came to redeem our future, to give us life eternal so that we are not damned, but so that we have life. And, wait for it, he also came to, to restore our purpose, our created purpose, to know God and to make him known, which was impossible when our soul was dead. So there is what the gospel came to communicate to the people of Corinth, as it has to many of us. And to that, the people connected, as many of us have. Wow, this is extraordinary. This is great news. This is amazing. And they experienced the gospel. They, they formed a biblical community, and in that biblical community that we know as, uh, uh, as the church, Paul began to disciple the people of Corinth, and he began to work with them to show them in this new life that they have now discovered through the redemptive work of Jesus what it looks like to live free, what it looks like to live full of purpose, what it looks like to live with a redeemed future, with a, a soul that is alive in Christ, and he developed that. And then he left on his third journey, and he's in Ephesus now, and you know what happened if you've been around, right? He got a letter from Corinth, and someone from Corinth came and told him, things are going badly in the church, why? Because the people of the church of Corinth have, uh, have gravitated back to seeking their fulfillment, their, their good, their, their value from the same stuff they were in the culture. They're just doing it inside the church now. Position, power, wealth, Honor, influence, uh, those, uh, those things, even pleasure, were all in the church of Corinth. And, and so Paul is writing to the church saying, guys, ladies, I know, I get it. You live in the land of opportunity where you constantly sought out value from these things because you want to live a life that matters, but this is not how it's playing out. What this is creating is a giant mess in the church, in your life, and for the good of the gospel and for the glory of God. And this is not who you are. This is not who you were made to be. You were made for a life far more extraordinary than this. After he traveled through most of the book of 1 Corinthians, unpacking in detail many of the, the, the simple realities that were playing out in that church. Dissension, uh, factions, the, the suing of one another, the use of the table of communion and the spiritual gifts to elevate self, gender clashes, I mean, you name it. It was a giant mess, similar to what we can often experience even within biblical communities in our cultural context, right? And now, toward the end of the letter, as he's bringing this letter to a close, he is bringing everything back to where it belongs. And that is the gospel, right? Because without the gospel, which is the good news of the redemptive story of God, we don't have anything. We don't have any reason even to read this letter or even to put it into practice. It comes back down to why would you live this way because your soul is rescued, because your purpose is restored, because your future is redeemed. That's why. And so as Paul traveled through chapter 13 and talked about the critical nature of love, that all of this comes out of our love for God and our love for each other, but our love cannot be mustered up. Our love must be born out of our worship and awe of God, and our worship and awe of God is born out of his redemptive story. Do you see the sequence? We cannot behave in a manner worthy of the gospel to bring life and redemption unless we love. And we cannot love unless we are captivated by love, by the reality of God. And we cannot be captivated by the reality of God unless the gospel is fresh and real and true in us. 
If the gospel is not good news for you, it is not gonna be good news for anyone. And that's what Paul's trying to do. And then, in chapter 14, he unpacked the reality of the gospel into 15, where he said, here's the gospel, don't forget. Christ came, he died, he rose again to do what? To save your soul, to redeem your future, to restore your purpose, live in that. And now what Paul's gonna do in the rest of chapter 15 is awesome. Because what he's gonna do is he's gonna take the gospel and in order to expand the beauty of the gospel, in order to expand the power of the gospel, in order to expand our awe of the gospel, our awe of God and all that he's done, he's actually gonna zoom into a particular aspect of the gospel out of its wholeness and say, this aspect is critical, beautiful, wonderful, and when you look into it and stare into it, it will change everything as you know it. That sounds pretty exciting, doesn't it? So let's go take a look. First Corinthians chapter 15, if you are using one of the Bibles, we provide, we're on page 664, 664. If you're using a smart device or one of your Bibles, we are gonna be in First Corinthians chapter 15 and we are going to be in verse 12. Verse 12, so. Paul, coming out of the beginning of 15, has just unpacked the gospel. We were there last week. If you don't remember, go podcast it. And we traveled through the beauty of the gospel and all that it is. And now look what he says in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as risen from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? How can any of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? You see, what's happened here is this. What Paul is speaking to here is this, that in the church of Corinth, a number of the people had concluded that the gospel, the the work of Jesus, his death and resurrection was to give us a better life now, to give us meaning now, to live in this wonder of our salvation now, but at the end of the day, there was gonna be no resurrection from the dead. This was born primarily in the church of Corinth out of a philosophy that had come out of that cultural context with a group, a group of uh, Greeks that had philosophized and said that there is no bodily or spiritual resurrection from the dead. Our life now is the one that matters, and though there is God, it is about the here and now. They were called the Epicureans, and the Epicureans were a group of Greek philosophers that had birthed this idea, and this idea had weaved it way, its way into the church in Corinth. So the people in Corinth had concluded, the people in the church had concluded that though it was awesome that Jesus had come and died for us and rose from the dead to save us, we, when we die, we die. And there is no resurrection from the dead. So you can imagine the implications of that kind of idea, right? If, if the gospel is only for now, only for this life, how does that change the way we see life and the way we live? And that is exactly what Paul is now going to deal with. Because of this Epicurean false teaching that had come in, Paul is dealing with this truth. He's both unpacking some truth for them, but he's also gonna demonstrate the implications of this truth. And you will see in this, Paul is on fire. I mean, he is passionate when he's writing this stuff. You'll hear it in the, in the words and the tone as he writes. He's like, come on. I mean, you could just hear him like, how could you think that? Then how is that possible? And what on earth do you mean by that? You will hear it as we read. So take a look at what he says here. 
So now if Christ has proclaimed us raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now he unpacks that. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. This is an extraordinary statement. Paul is saying, if we do not resurrect from the dead, then Christ did not resurrect from the dead. You're going to see how he ties that together later on. But that is a big statement. What he's saying here is this. If Jesus rose, we rise. If Jesus didn't rise, we don't rise. If we don't rise, Jesus didn't rise. That's a big deal, right? Now take a look at what he says. He says this. And if Christ has not raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true, that the dead are not raised. So he's saying this, if your conclusion is correct that the dead are not raised to life, then Christ was not raised to life. And if Christ was not raised to life, then we are lying about what God did. We are misrepresenting God, and that is disastrous. Because we're saying God rose Christ from the dead, and he didn't. Because we don't rise, so therefore Christ didn't rise, so therefore the entire foundation of the gospel is falling apart. Now look at what he says here. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. This is a huge deal. Because what he's saying is that the reality that we have experienced of our souls being made alive through Christ is not just the result of Christ's death on the cross. It is also the result of Christ's resurrection from the dead. If Christ did not resurrect, then he is not the Savior, then we are not saved, and then everything we are doing as a result of our faith is futile and useless. I mean, basically what he's saying to, the, to all of us, to the church in Corinth is this, all that faith you have that you're living by, all those insane things you're doing by faith for the sake of Christ, useless, futile, don't bother if Christ is not risen. And if we are not resurrected, then Christ is not risen. And so this is the foundation of our entire life, this gospel. And this piece of the gospel matters a great deal to the reality of the gospel, the power of the gospel, and our lives. Take a look. He goes on. Then, he says in verse 18, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished if in Christ we have hope in this life only we are of all people to be most pitied. Wow. See, Paul is on fire about this. Listen, guys, don't you get it? He says to the Corinthians, if indeed this philosophy is correct and we do not resurrect from the dead and all of this gospel I've preached to you is only to benefit your current life, this work of Jesus is only for the here and now, then listen, we ought to be the most pitied. Why does he say that? Because you and I are living in some hard stuff, choosing some hard things for the sake of Christ, for the sake of the glory of God. We are putting ourselves in difficult places. We are abandoning self for the sake of Christ. Who would do that if there was no Christ? It's like, look, if he didn't rise, why are you doing that? You're dying to self. Who's stupid enough to do that if Christ did not rise? We ought to be the most pitied. We have been the most duped. 
We are living in the most, the, the, the most naivety of all if Christ did not rise. And you are saying we don't rise. And if you are saying that, then therefore Christ did not rise. See, what Paul's doing here is he's zooming in to a particular aspect of the holistic nature of the gospel. The gospel, that's the redemptive story of God, has three primary effectors or impacts on your life and mine. Okay, we've talked about this a lot. Let me remind you. It is the rescue of our soul, right? So we, are, we were once dead, and now we have been made alive in Christ. So you were dead, I was dead, and because of the great love of God and His grace, we are made alive when we were once dead. That's the rescue of soul. That is for this life and has impact on the next, okay? Then we find out that the gospel is also a restoration of our purpose. We are Christ's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared in advance for us to do. That is part of in Christ, which means it's part of the gospel. We are not only brought to life, but we are also restored to the purpose we were created for, which changes the entire way we live, right? So that in our relationships, in our resources, in our circumstances, we now live with great purpose because of Christ. And then the third component is that our future is redeemed. There is actually an, an eternality to the gospel. We were once dead to eternity, now we are alive to eternity. We were once dead in eternity, now we are alive in eternity. So this is eternal life, Jesus said, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. In knowing Christ and knowing God, we therefore enter into a life now and in the future that is eternal in its life, in its freedom, in its beauty. And so this aspect of future redemption is critical to the nature of the gospel. Last week I said to you that so often in our cultural context we see the gospel in two of its aspects and we miss the third. We say the gospel is a past reality, my soul was saved, with future implications, and when I die, I get to go to heaven. But we miss the entire middle part of the gospel, which is because my soul is saved and my future is redeemed, I have real purpose now. But you see what Paul's saying here is the other thing's just as terrible. If you say, my soul has been brought to life, I, it has a past reality, and therefore I live with purpose. It has a present influence, but there is no future redemption. I am not resurrected. Then what's the point of all this? What's the point of having your soul made alive? What's the point of having your purpose restored if there's no future redemption? So Paul's saying, no, there's, there's great future redemption, and without it, we have nothing because the gospel does not stand on any one or two of its issues, it stands on all three. If our souls are not made alive, what's the point? If our future is not redeemed, what's the point? If our purpose is not restored, what's the point? And so he's saying, listen, this future redemption is massive. So look, now he says it, verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep for as by a man came death, by a man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all died, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So here's what he's saying. I hear you. I hear you don't think there's a resurrection from the dead, but you're dead wrong. 
there is a resurrection from the dead because otherwise Christ isn't risen. And let me tell you, Christ is risen. And those who have already died on this planet are the first fruits of the experience of that full redemption. Because they have not died into death, they have died into life. And so this is awesome news. That he is risen and that he has changed everything. And just like sin and death entered through one man, so too through the, through the death and resurrection of one man, we have life. Now the rest of this little passage, uh, going from verse 23 all the way down uh, to, the, uh, to verse 34, Paul is going to unpack in some detail some of the implications theologically in a doctrinal fashion to this reality that sin came through Adam and life through Jesus. He's going to talk in there about all sorts of details of who came first and what's under whose dominion and how that all plays out. It's interesting stuff. It'll take us an hour. We're not doing it. Here's the point of this little section, okay? Uh, here's what it says. Look at verse uh, 26. Look what it says in verse 26. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. And so what it's talking about is this Christ in his resurrection has been made Lord over all, though he was Lord over all always. So everything is subject to him, including death itself. And so he has overcome death. And it is death that will be the final victim of life, light, and freedom in Christ. See how that ties to the resurrection? No resurrection, no victory victory over death. So he's like, resurrection is our victory. It's all we've got in terms of real victory. And when it is there, it is victory even over the one thing we cannot touch, which is death, because death is under the sovereignty of God. And it is beautiful. And then he says this in verse 29 through verse 32. He talks about this. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? It's some weird stuff there. Not because Paul is telling us we should baptize people on behalf of the dead. The Corinthians were doing some things that were contradictory to the very philosophy they had. So they were baptizing on behalf of the dead. We deal with that later. And here's what Paul is saying. Why would you even do that? Why would you even do that if, if they're dead? And they're not resurrected. See, the very things you do, even though they may be kind of silly, say that you hope that there's something. But you've just said there's not. And then look what he says next. He says this, um, verse, 30, verse 31. I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought the beasts at Ephesus? So he's saying this. I live my life Dying to self every day, putting myself in harm's way, living missionally, making the gospel beautiful even when I'm being imprisoned, being stoned, being, being locked away, being, being ridiculed, being, being persecuted. I keep doing that for what? For what would I do that? Why would I fight the beasts in Ephesus, humanly speaking, if indeed Christ is not resurrected? I die every day. And look, he, he closes it this way. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. That was a quote right out of Corinth, right? They used to use that all the time in Corinth, kind of like a Vegas deal, right? You're in Corinth. Let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And Paul's like, yep, that's a, that's a great philosophy if we're not resurrected from the dead. Just go do that. Don't fight the beasts in Ephesus. Don't try to make the gospel beautiful. Don't fight for the glory of God. What for? Just eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow you die. 
Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. See, here's what he's saying. Saying this reality of ignoring the resurrection from the dead is one of the primary foundational uh, falsehoods that is affecting the way the Corinthians are living. See, he's been talking for an entire letter about their idiocy. Why are you living this way? Why are you living that way? Why are you ignoring the gospel? Why are you ignoring the glory of God? Why are you ignoring the wisdom of God? And he's saying, look, wake up from your stupor because you're living that way because you think when we die, we die. But there is so much more. We live with purpose. We live for the gospel. We live for the glory of God. We choose hard things. We step into difficult lives. We lay down ourselves for the glory of God even when an easier route is available to us that will not bring as much glory to God because we know there is more to the story than just this life. And then he says, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And then there's an entire paragraph all the way to 49, which we're not gonna read because you can read it yourself. And all Paul is saying in this paragraph is, guys, here's the way it works. Your body right now is perishable. Okay, it's not going to survive in eternity. It's not going to survive the holiness of God. So it must die for the new body to be resurrected. So when you say, what kind of body will I have? Is it gonna be like mine right now? You foolish person, if God so much as glimpsed at you, you would disintegrate. Your body can't survive that. What is perishable must die so that what is imperishable may be brought to life. That's that entire paragraph. And look, he summarizes it here in in its conclusion by saying, this is why everything I've just told you about the body matters. Verse 50. I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must be put on must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying. Now listen, stop there for a second. Here's what Paul just did. He used the idea that not everybody is actually going to die before they are raised to to death. He talks about the end times here and says, for some, while they are still living and breathing, Christ will return and when he does, then those who will see him without dying will also be changed. Why is he bringing that up here? This is not about end times theology. This is simply him saying, guys, all of us have to get changed. Right? All of us do. If you die, don't worry. Your body will be resurrected. What if, what if it gets burned? What if I'm cremated? What if, I, what if there's nothing left? What if I drown and it gets... It doesn't matter. Everybody that got buried, they're gone now too. All that's left is their bones and for some not even that. So this body goes away. And for those of us that don't even die, well guess what? This body's perishable and not immortal and so God will have to put on to this body, onto us, the imperishable and the immortal for us to live on. So everyone changes. 
everyone changes. And part of the implication of the beauty of the gospel is that what is imperishable and what is mortal and what is old and what is dying will not be what we carry into our new life. We carry into our new life what is new, what is imperishable, and what is immortal. And it will be given to you at the right time when you need it. So stop fretting, you foolish people. That's what he's saying to the Corinthians, right? Look what he's saying. Here's the implications to this immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? There it is. See, that's what this is all about, isn't it? He's saying to us the the implications of this beautiful truth that we are resurrected in Christ and therefore there is resurrection from the dead does two extremely important things to you and I. One, it gives us the purpose that we long for so much. It says, if you live on this planet and you lay yourself down for the sake of the glory of God, you invest your time, your energy, your resources into the story of God. You utilize your relationships to make beautiful the gospel. Whether those relationships are awesome and beautiful or horrid and terrible, you you figure out whatever dynamic you're living in, whatever challenges you may have, how to become a person that says, for the glory of God for the beautification of the gospel I will live this way instead of that way because this is for Christ with our resources however much we have or how little that is what we do and with our circumstances the same thing are your circumstances beautiful glorious best year of your life great then that is for the glory of God use it as such are your circumstances terrible difficult you're facing the greatest darkness you ever have great then use that for the glory of God. That's what this is saying, but it's saying more than that. It's saying, listen, not only does it give us the beauty and opportunity to live purposefully in all circumstances, all relational dynamics, and all resource realities, but it also gives us great hope when those things aren't as pretty as they seem and as they should have been, right? Are you struggling in the valley of the shadow of death? Are you walking through the ravaging realities of disease? Are you facing broken relationship you never intended? Are you uh, watching a loved one die or have you recently lost someone? Have you, have you experienced the death of a child or a spouse or a, or a parent? Ha- have you lived through that? Are you living through that? Are you in the middle of resource challenges that feel so scary to you that you can't breathe and you can't make it to the end of the day because creditors call all the time and never stop and all you're trying to do is survive? Are you in the middle of circumstances that you never signed up for? And he says, listen, that is hard. That is heavy. But since Christ came, There is resurrection from the dead, which means, here it is, oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your victory? You think you're winning? You think you got me? You think this is it? You think I'm going, oh no. Oh no, 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 no. Where is your sting? Where is your sting? For you have been swallowed up in victory. See, what he's saying is, that the death and resurrection of Christ has changed everything, including our hopelessness, 
including our meaninglessness, including a life without purpose. It has changed our meaninglessness into deep, abiding purpose and our hopelessness into a victory over even that which is hopeless. The world should look into those who follow Jesus and say, where do you find the purpose by which you live? How is it you lay yourself down time and time again in such, uh, in such courageous beauty when it's so much easier to go the other way? How is it that when all is falling apart around you, you seem to have an abiding hope even in the middle of deep grief? How? And then you say, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? See, Paul actually clarifies this. Look what he says. The sting of death is sin. That is what killed us all, isn't it? And the power of sin is the law. What does that mean? It means that the power sin has to condemn you and I is the law. The law is righteous. The law is good. The law is of God. And the law stands in judgment of us and sin condemns us because of the law. You see what he's saying? The real power sin has is that there is in fact righteousness by which we ought to live and we cannot. And so sin has the right to condemn us. Do you see how powerful that is? You and I are condemned by sin. That is the power of death, sin, and the power of sin, righteousness. But look, look. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, our hope is found not only in the resurrection of Christ, but also in our resurrection that comes because of Christ. That sin no longer has power over us and death is no longer our consequence. This is the life we get to live. Paul writes uh, to this same people group in 2 Corinthians. Listen to this, 2 Corinthians chapter four. Listen to what he writes in verse 16. 2 Corinthians chapter four, verse 16. He's just talked about a very difficult circumstantial reality and he writes this. So we do not lose hope. We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension as we look not to the things that we see but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. See our great hope? And then listen to what he writes to the church in Colossae in Colossians chapter three. This is Paul again. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. There is our resurrection. And so Paul says, listen, because of the gospel, because of resurrection, we live with purpose, we live courageously, and we have hope. And so Paul ends this little part of 1 Corinthians with these words. And before I read them, picture Paul 
standing behind us as we're staring at the wall of the gospel, at thousands of stories before us, and Paul leans in and he goes, carpe diem, carpe diem, seize the day, not a bucket list, not more opportunities, not a retirement as an end goal, the retirement is all good and fine, but the glory of God and a life of purpose to make the gospel beautiful. Listen, listen. Therefore, my beloved brothers, this is verse 57, uh, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. We have great hope in difficult stuff. And we have great perseverance in being people that live for the glory of God and the beautification of the gospel in difficult stuff because Christ resurrected from the dead and because we resurrect from the dead. So the gospel is here. When you were once dead, he made you alive. When you were once lost to your created purpose, he restored to you your purpose to know God and make him known. And though you were once lost to life in eternity, he has given you future. He has given me future. And this is the gospel. And this is our lifeline by which we live our lives to the glory of God because of the grace of God. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that you used Paul in such a mighty way in this letter to the church in Corinth to unpack with such passion the reality that we should never be duped into believing that all that you did was only for this life. That we live, then we die, then that's the end. But that in fact, you gave yourself fully in life, in death, and then resurrected from the dead so that we might have life now and resurrection into eternity with you. What a hope, what a victory that you would say, oh death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? For you have been swallowed up by Christ. And when we resurrect, we stand in defiance of death by your grace for your glory. Thank you, Jesus. We pray in your precious name. Amen. Amen.